Welcome to the Weekend Booktopian, our podcast about all things book news and the books that we are reading and enjoying. I'm Nick Wasily of Booktopia's social media specialist, and I'm joined today by our nonfiction lifestyle category manager, Shanu Prasad. Hello. Our business development and relationship manager for trade books at Booktopia Publishing Services, Scott Whitmont. Hello, Hi, Scott. Hi, everyone. Hi, Nick. And back once again, joining us from over the seas, a very good morning to Nick Coverney, the publisher, relations and content lead for UK, Australia and New Zealand at Ruckerton Kobo. Good morning, Nick. Good morning. Thanks, Nick. So, as with all episodes, the guests may change, but the format does not. We will kick off by diving into the world of book news, then we'll be discussing the books that we have been reading and enjoying, and then be sure to stick around to the end where my guests will go head-to-head in a battle for book supremacy that we like to call Book Fight. So, the major news that is out this week is the announcement of the winner of the International Book Prize. So, we are recording this on a Wednesday afternoon slash Wednesday morning. And this announcement will be unveiled tonight, our time. Scott, um, what can you tell us about the shortlist for this year? Well... I'll tell you something about it, but before I say that, in case listeners aren't aware, the International Booker Prize, as opposed to the regular Booker Prize, has only been around since 2005, and it's for books that are written in a foreign language and have been translated into English. And the prize is £50,000, which is better than a kick in the butt, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, And it's actually divided between the author and the translator in uh, acknowledgement and recognition of the amazing work that translators do so they're considered equal to the author as far as the the booker international is concerned. So just a bit of background about that people might be interested in and the judges uh, looked at 125 books this year that's uh, you know quite a commitment if you're a judge on the panel (laughs) to read through 125 books that have been translated but they've come up with a short list of five one of whom drumroll we're about to hear the winner uh, and they're all rather interesting. The two uh, that were written in French, two or three, I think, or two in Spanish, no, two in French, two in Spanish, one in Danish and one in Russian. Uh, they're all weird and wonderful books. In fact, the judging panel described them uh, overall as urgent, energetic and wildly original works. And just to run through them, uh, David Diop is a Senegalese French writer. He was born in Senegal, raised there, but now lives in France. And he's written a book called At Night All Blood is Black. Uh, the interesting thing about this, it's from a little, it's about a little-known historical fact that there were some Africans from colonial Africa who fought for the French in World War One on the Western Front. So maybe it's just me, but I don't think a lot of uh, readers knew about the small number of Africans that uh, the French colonialists use as fodder in the battlefield in World War One. So I found that particularly interesting, and it's meant to be quite sort of harrowing but fascinating story about the mental health of this Senegalese soldier fighting in France. The second book is called The Dangers of Smoking in Bed and it's a collection of short stories by uh, short stories by an Argentinian author Mariana Enriquez and uh, they're urban, uh, modern-day urban stories set in Buenos Aires or in Argentina uh, but they're kind of 
well, I don't want to sound like I'm judging when I say kind of weird. There's like horror stories meeting Mm. reality. Um, There's some kind of disturbing and weird and wonderful subjects in them. They're not connected. It's a series of short stories which the international booker allows for. Uh, And the next one is called When We Cease to Understand the World by Benjamin uh, Labatat from Chile. Uh, He lives in Chile now. He's... uh, lived all over the world, uh, but it's written in Spanish. It's called an intellectual adventure that's described as by the judges. Uh, And it's about epoch-defining moments from the history of science. It's very intellectual. There's all these moments in science. I'm not sure I quite understood it. I'm not very versed in science history, but for those who are, I'm sure they'll find it fascinating. Mm. Uh, The next one is called The Employees, a workplace novel of the 22nd century. It's actually a sci-fi book by a Russian author named, uh, uh, sorry, Danish author named Olga Raven. And uh, it's about the difference between humans and humanoids in space. It's set in space and it looks at the issue of what it means to be human. And the Russian, the one I said a bit earlier, uh, too early, the Russian one, is by Maria Stepanova, In Memory of Memory. And it's uh, based on the story of a Jewish family who survived all the perils and pitfalls of the 20th century, of everything from First, Second World War, the Holocaust, through the pogroms, uh, through uh, the end of the 20th century. I think uh, that Maria has based it on her family. She is a very respected contemporary poet in Russia. So they say she's the best contemporary poet and it's meant to be very beautifully written. Mm. And the last one is called The War of the Poor by Eric Vuillard, he's French, and it's set in the 16th century in the Protestant Reformation uh, through the life of one man it looks at. So totally different, all five of them. Mm. It's going to be really interesting to see who wins and everyone will hear soon because, as you said, we're gonna, you're going to cut and paste in, into this <laughs> recording when we find out tonight. Uh, my vote, I think, would be for the first one because I'm so fascinated in quirky things in history that I didn't know about. So Africans fighting in World War I in France I thought was quite interesting. But they're all different genre-bending titles, um, a very interesting mix, and uh, time will tell. A very short time will know, but it's great that this prize illuminates books that normally, and authors that we who read in English don't normally get to read. So it's great that we can do that. Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, Nick, I'll just quickly throw to you, because you've mentioned that you're familiar with these uh, books as well. Is there any that particularly stand out for you? Um, It's really a hard to sort of pick a favourite, to be honest with you, because they're, they're so unique and the, the, the voices are so um, incredibly sort of different to what I'm used to reading that they, they all kind of um, merit reading on their own, if you know what I mean. But I, I wouldn't want to compare them. I definitely don't envy the justice having to pick a winner out. For sure. <laughs> exactly, because none of them are alike at all in style or genre. <laughs> Indeed, it's a, it's it's going to be a very fascinating uh, pick there. So now, through the magic of editing, we will find out who the winner is. Transition, and through the power of editing, it is now Thursday morning, and we have a winner. David Diop has won the 2021 International Book Prize for his novel At Night All Blood Is Black, becoming the first French novelist and the first of African heritage to do so. Lucy Hughes Hallett, the Chair of Judges, has said, quote, This story of warfare and love and madness has a terrifying power. The protagonist is accused of sorcery, and there is something uncanny about the way the narrative works on the reader. 
We judges agree that it's, an, in, that it's incantatory prose and dark, brilliant vision has jangled our emotions and blown our minds, that it has cast a spell on us, unquote. David Diop and his translator, Anna Moshkovarkas, will share the £50,000 prize money between them. Congratulations to David and to Anna for their win, and we will now take you back to Wednesday afternoon. Transition. Awesome, and congratulations to that winner there. We are now back uh, in the podcast room, and we will now jump in to the books that we have been reading and enjoying. And I'll throw to Nick first across the airwaves to the UK. What have you been enjoying um, over the last couple of weeks? Um, so the most recent book that I've read and enjoyed um, is called The Outrage by William Hussey. And it's um, a sort of dystopian um, YA thriller, but all sort of centred around um, LGBTQ pride and the uh, idea of a sort of fascist society that emerges here in the UK um, after a series of terrorist attacks um, and in the wake of the terror attacks, uh, basically the society decides to outlaw anyone who's uh, LGBTQ as well as um, basically going on a, a number of different um, purges for minority groups in society. So it's quite harrowing and dark, but it, it's also um, very compelling and moving. It's got a lot of humour in it and a lot of um, pop culture references. So it's sort of dystopian and um, set in the future, but only, say, 30 or 25 years. Wow, interesting. So it's it sounds a bit like uh, your, your V for Vendetta, but kind of with the more of an LG, uh, LGBTQ your eyes plus slant. Is that what it's kind of familiar with, or is it is it more, or is it kind of more something that stands on its own two feet as a story? Um, I, I mean, it definitely has some similarities to the Vendetta. Um, that there is the sort of um, you know a heavily politicised um, propaganda from the protectorate, who's the um, you know oppressive regime that, that pushed this kind of nastiness. Um, but it's just really, really fascinating because it, it frames the whole thing around, um, I'm just trying to think about how I can best describe this without being too many spoilers. Um, <laughs> that basically the, the, the lead characters, um, find a box and the box is kind of like a window to the past because the box contains a load of old DVDs, which have now banned films. So through watching those films and TV series. Uh, which many readers will recognise, the kids start to um, question, you know, everything that's been pushed on them by this horrible, oppressive regime um, and then try and work out ways they can attempt to bring it down. Oh, that's pretty cool. It sounds a little bit like a <clears throat> TV show that was on um, ABC Kids, which is like a our sort of um, public broadcaster here, um, which is a UK show actually where um, a bunch of teenagers in the future um, where um, – uh, all kind of forms of expression have have sort of been um, cancelled except for this one specific kind of dancing and there's this big dance competition that they do but the dancing is not what we would call dancing. Uh, but then, yeah, they break into this um, place in the middle of like a forest and they find like all of the pop culture from the last sort of like 60 years or out sort of 60 years and they um, they start to bring the new dance moves your, scene, your book seems a lot more like serious and a lot more like you know, issue based, but this was fun too. But I kind of like that idea of dystopian 
um, like that kind of dystopian fiction where self-expression is is banned, um, which is funny because there's another book that's going to be coming out in a couple of months um, that we're already hearing like really big things about um, by um, uh, sort of like YouTube star. Um, she's like an artist, um, a singer, an actor um, called Aviva. Um, and um, yeah, it's also it's another kind of um, dystopian YA set in a in a future where uh, you cannot express yourself. All mm. self-expression is bad. Nick, I find that a lot of these dystopian novels written with a target audience for young adult have great crossover appeal to adults like us, not just young adults, because of their themes and interesting subjects that they introduce to consider our society and what's going wrong with it or could go wrong with it. Do you find that this book and others like it are of equal appeal for adults as they are for the young adults? Definitely. Um, I, I think that particularly uh, in the context of um, some worrying things that we've, we've got happening here in the UK uh, right now in terms of our politics, um, it, it, it feels very timely. Um, the UK government, uh, for those of us who aren't aware, are currently proposing a public consultation on um, thoughts about a ban on conversion therapy. So our government the last several years had already previously committed to banning conversion therapy, uh, which is basically when um, members of the LGBTQ plus community are forced to undergo treatment, in inverted commas, um, which you can't see because you're listening. But um, it's a horrible, reprehensible practice, which has been um, widely condemned by the international medical community and the World Health Organization. Um, it's recognised as a form of torture, and the UK government thinks it's really important that everyone gets to share their voice on whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, uh, which means potentially that people who currently uh, practice this reprehensible um, activity yep. in mm. order to try and force people to not be themselves, they get to contribute too. Because, you know, what we really need as members of the LGBTQ plus community is for people who don't like us to tell us uh, whether or not we can or can't be safe. <laughs> That's quite uh, chilling and worrying in itself. Um, and there, there are a few other instances I could reference as well. But it, it's just, I think the, the really important thing to, to look at, and actually this ties into a previous uh, title I discussed on the last um, Booktopia podcast, you guys were kind enough to invite me on, is that it's really important um, that people acknowledge that for any kind of minority community who have made strides in recent years and decades uh, in terms of improved legal rights, those rights are very germative and by very nature kind of insecure because they've been brought in by recent governments, which means they could easily be removed by recent governments, as has been seen in Poland. So I think it's really important that um, books like this raise these questions, and it's certainly something that I think adults would engage with just as much as a younger audience. Well, you convince me. I'll get a copy. Yeah, this <laughs> sounds like this book's coming at the right time, uh, considering all the stuff that's happening in the UK. So the second book I'd like to talk about is The Thursday Murder Club uh, by Richard uh, Osman. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how um, famous he is in Australia, but he's a, a very popular TV 
personality. Book went, um, um, crazy here. Yeah, the um, book's gone after, nuts. Yeah. Um, this year, though, so it was really interesting. The book didn't actually take off straight away. It really was like a post-Christmas um, boom. Um, but, yeah, we do get him on TV on a bunch of different um, UK shows that we get on various platforms Platforms here. So that answers my question as to whether or not Pointless has dominated the globe uh, as well as yes. the UK. <laughs> we had our very subpar uh, local edition, uh, local um, version of it, but uh, it's nowhere near as good as the UK version. Yeah, we, we, we heard a lot of great stuff about this book. It, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, and it, here in the UK, I th- think it's been number one um, in both hardback and paperback. Um, and and in ebook in, in many stores, including our own. And it, it's just a very, very warm and funny, um, surprising in part, but um, rewarding kind of crime book with a twist. So I, I won't say too much because it's really important that I don't, but um, I read it recently and greatly enjoyed it. Yeah, we've all heard great things, and um, I'm pretty sure everyone that listening that has um, read it or thought of, or was thinking about reading it will be excited to know that there is also a second book coming out this year. Is this there? Year, later, either later this year or early next year from him in the yes, same, same world. September, I believe. Yes. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, the what? man who died twice. <laughs> yep. Oh, wow. So if you haven't read it yet, you should go out and read it before the next one comes out because <laughs> uh, everyone's going to be talking about it. And it's now in a small format paperback, so you can get it inexpensively. If you're not reading it electronically, you can get a... Not too expensive version. Oh wow! Jeez, I better get I better get my act together. <laughs> I didn't know. You've only got a few months, Nick. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and the third book I thought I'd reference is one that I reread, um, which is something that I, I do uh, quite frequently when I feel like um, I want to reconnect with the, the universe. And it's uh, Shadow and Bone. Oh yes. The, um, I, I don't know if you've seen the, the Netflix adaptation, but it's very recently. Um, trended on Netflix globally. Uh, they've made a, a brilliant kind of dark um, version of the Shadow and Bone universe or the, the Grisha universe yeah. that includes the yeah the, the um, Kingdom of Crows narratives at the same time because those books um, were published a few years after the Grisha trilogy uh, concluded, but they kind of overlap um, with some of the characters and plot twists. So it's really interesting because um, for me, I read the Shadow and Bone um, series when it first published um, and greatly enjoyed it. And then kind of, you know, it joined the, the ranks of other um, sort of YA fantasy that, that I really love, but didn't come back to for a long time. So re-experiencing it in the context of um, with the Kingdom of Crows um, series as well and um, enjoying the Netflix adaptation was a, a really sort of fresh twist on it, which I greatly enjoyed. And did you? Did Obviously, you... the book is better than the adaptation. <laughs> <laughs> did you um, uh, re- do your reread after you um, watched the Netflix Shadow and Bone, or did you just hear about the Netflix Shadow and Bone and thought, yeah, yeah, yeah I want to read that again? Um, I, I heard about it well before. Excited that they were um, bringing it back, but I, I always watch these things with uh, a bit of a squint initially. <laughs> always concerned about uh, the treatment of the source material, but you, you could tell from the trailer I thought that um, yeah. this is going to be one of the, the better adaptations. Oh yeah, there's a number of people in the office that um, 
both <laughs> fans of the book and the um, and the TV show. I hadn't read the books. I tried to watch the TV show, had no idea what was going on. <laughs> feel that um, for anyone in my situation who would also be interested, that probably reading the books first is the way to go. Yes. Um, and we have a great blog um, a great blog uh, post which is very helpful for people like myself who are not overly <laughs> familiar with the Grishaverse or Grishaverse. I always advocate reading it first because then you just imagine the scene and the characters, use your imagination in your head instead of just picturing the scene you saw on the television screen, mm. which is what happens if you watch the series first. So, yeah, yeah. Re- read them sometimes first by all means. Sometimes you can get very disappointed by the fact that you've thought what someone looks like and then the <laughs> act, actor they've chosen hasn't. So yeah. I do understand what you're saying, but I do think yeah, occasionally there can be, you know... I, I, but I, I accept that. That's someone else's <laughs> vision. That's fine. I still first... Uh, prefer to create my own vision but judging on uh, our sales figures at Booktopia uh, a lot of people have been going to the book after watching the series it's been a very popular series indeed (laughs) Um, well the great thing is um, because they're they're following kind of like the narrative arc um, of the original trilogy um, for the the series adaptation Um, although they've they've brought in the sort of Six of Crows and other um, Crows books into the production which um hadn't came out they're still taking their time following the, the trilogy format so there's time for everybody to, to read the catch um, mm. books and catch up yeah absolutely which is which, which uh, bodes excite which is exciting for because everyone when that second season comes out they'll be able to have a look at it and compare it themselves now having become familiar with that universe well that's why you've completed all the bridgerton novels now right Nick? <laughs> I think I'm, I heard that uh, uh, Nick, our Nick here, had read them all at least three times. Absolutely. I, I just the moment the moment that I saw the Duke, I just thought I just have to enter that world. That is the world I want to be. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, thank you so much, uh, Nick, over the airwaves. Um, the amazing recommendations. Love it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me again, guys. Um, so I'm now going to turn over to Scott. Um, I, Hi again. <laughs> hello again. Um, what are the books that you have been uh, enjoying over the last couple of weeks? Well, in the interest of variety, I've got one fiction and one non-fiction. Uh, the fiction one has just come out this week. It's an Australian uh, novel called The Covered Wife by Lisa Emanuel, published by Pantera Press, which is a great small independent publisher that do some really good books. And this one grabbed me from the beginning. It's a contemporary story set in Sydney about a young woman named Sarah who was raised by a single mother. She didn't have much of a family life. She never really felt accepted in a social group or larger family setting. She didn't have one. And so she meets this guy, Daniel, who's quite the opposite. He's from a very large, loving family. And he's He's quite religious uh, Jewish man, as Sarah, that's her background also, but she was really not practising before she met Daniel. And with the influence of uh, this very charismatic rabbi who has a group of people, of followers uh, in near Bondi Beach in Sydney, uh, she gets more and more involved in orthodox Jewish life and finds herself happy to be part of a cohesive social group because she's missed that in her past and she happily uh, becomes more and more religious and takes on the practices inherent in that. She's a educated professional woman but she she wants to get more involved in religious life and that's great. 
except when it goes further than normal everyday life. Uh, The rabbi and his wife set up in the Blue Mountains a retreat where all the followers go to live and gradually it becomes more and more fundamentalist. And uh, Lisa Emanuel looks at the issue of when does religious devotion cross the line to be cult-like extremism? And why would someone who's educated, professional, voluntarily go down that road uh, when their own personal freedoms might be threatened, even their personal safety. Um, So they're the issues it looks at. uh, And as things ramp up and Lisa accepts uh, gradually uh, the strictures to her day-to-day behaviour and what's allowed and what's not allowed, um, gradually her life starts to not be the life that she'd set out to have. And so it looks at all those issues about religious extremism, not Judaism specifically, but any religious extremism. Um, I found it really, as I said, gripping and a fascinating story about what can happen when you perhaps cross the line from one to the other. Uh, Really, really interesting um, story of family and devotion and um, also cult-like behaviour. (laughs) <laughs> Jeez, it sounds like a real moral examination of moral, the nature of morality, particularly around religion. Yeah, look, it made me think of The Handmaid's Tale too. It's not quite as harrowing as that, although there's a few things that happen. You think, oh, my God. But mm. in terms of, you know, what can happen when things are taken to an extreme, that's that's the part that reminded me. And that same sort of gripping, like, oh, my God, I can't believe what I'm reading or watching in The Handmaid's Tale, Just speaking of TV uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> translations from books. Um, but uh, if you couldn't watch The Handmaid's Tale because it was too too hard for you. Don't think this book is like that. I'm just making the comparison about what can happen when things become ridiculously extremist and, mm. and how your personal, um, you know, uh, barriers and, uh, you know, freedoms can be impinged upon. That That's what reminded me. But it was a really, really good story. I, I highly recommended The Covered Wife. And the second one, totally different, but not different for me. If you've heard me on this podcast before, I like a bit of royal history. And uh, <laughs> there's the first full biography that's just come out of uh, Princess Mary. And I'm not talking about our Australian Princess Mary, who's crown princess in Denmark. I'm talking about the Queen's aunt. So Princess Mary was the last Princess Royal. She was the Countess of Harewood and she was the sister of uh, George VI and Edward VIII or Duke of Windsor. So she was the daughter of one king and the sister of two other kings. But she didn't really have a very big public profile with the media. Um, She was very shy. She didn't like big crowds. But she was still very dedicated to assisting her mother, Queen Mary, and King George V and her two brothers when they were king uh, to assist not just the crown but in public service and many charities. She was very big in the Girl Guides movement, Girl Guide movement and getting that going and uh, uh, encouraging it. She was the first British royal to work profes- train and work professionally as a nurse. Um, she raised a lot of money through a charity in World War One when she was just a very young woman herself for gift tins to be sent to every uh, Empire soldier in World War One who were out there in the trenches and in the field. And if they were smokers, it had tobacco and matches in their cigarettes and a little Christmas card saying to victory for 1914 and a picture of King George V and Queen Mary. And if they weren't smokers, they got a tin that had uh, a little notepad and a, and a pen. And there's thousands of these tins around today. You can see them, buy them on the internet because there were millions at the time they went to every soldier. And she raised the money for that to to, um, 
uh, you know, encourage them and give them something in the field. She was also the first uh, female university chancellor in Great Britain. She was the chancellor of Leeds University. She lived in Leeds after she married. And there's a lot about her that most most people don't know her um, now, these decades after she died in 1965, uh, at a relatively young age. She was just in the late 60s and she died suddenly. Um, she Lastly, I'll say she stood in for her niece, Queen Elizabeth II, and for her brothers when they were kings as a councillor of state, which meant when they were indisposed because they were on tours or they were pregnant or uh, sick, you know, she would hop in and act for them, uh, representing them in various official functions. And she did a number of royal tours herself, representing uh, the Queen for the independence celebrations of Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean or um, Zambia in Africa, often making up to five uh, official engagements a day, making speeches which was not in her character to do. She, she did it reluctantly, but she did it willingly and was really an incredibly, ad, ad, incredibly admirable uh, public servant and someone who gave a lot to encourage women's education particularly. Uh, and it was very interesting to read and learn all about her because I didn't know a lot about her. I just knew that George V had one daughter and her name was Mary. And most people don't know more than that, even if they know that. So it's illustrated uh, with lots of nice photos. It's by Elizabeth Basford, who's done meticulous research. And as I said, there's never been a full biography of her. So if that history interests you, which spans really from the... 19 teens, World War I period through to her death in the mid-60s. It was a really interesting history available now. So there's my review of Princess Mary. Uh, the subtitle was um, the, 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 last, the First Modern Princess. That's like the most Scott book to ever exist, it sounds Well, like. look, I am partial to these. I, uh, you know, I think we should be a republic in Australia personally, but I'm very interested in royal history and the effect <laughs> that a lot of members of the royal family over the generations have had on not just British society, but the whole of what was the empire and is now the Commonwealth. And that certainly comes through in this very interesting portrait of, of Mary, the Countess of Harewood. So there you go. There you go, Nick. Do you feel like uh, you've learnt something there as an English person hearing <laughs> Scott talk about Princess Mary or you were familiar with her? Uh, more than perhaps I care to know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, she, she does sound like a very admirable individual um, and very dedicated public servant, so... Yeah, that's an interesting book on a lesser-known royal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's. I think it's good people will know about her through this book. So. Yeah. Yep. Thank you so much, Scott. Amazing recommendations as always. I'll now turn to you, Shanu. What have you been enjoying the last few weeks? Uh, yeah, so I've read a few different books. Um, the first one I'm going to talk about is a book uh, that's going to be coming out... Oh, now. <laughs> June. Yes, <laughs> it is June. It is already June. Okay, so it's out now. Um, it's called uh, Love in Theory. Um, by Elodie Cheeseman. Uh, it's by Pan McMillan. Um, she is a debut author. Um, it's uh, literally, it is what it says on the tin. It's a feel-good romantic comedy for those cold winter nights. Um, <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I thought it was terrific, um, especially as a, as a debut author. She really managed to um, create characters that were um, both um, enjoyable to read but also flawed but not in a really super annoying way which sometimes makes it hard to read romantic comedies when they make the heroine super flighty or something, you know, and she's, you know, always clumsy or something like that. So um, this is a heroine who is a smart 24-year-old lawyer who um, has a great relationship with her parents, um, has great friends, 
um, wasn't particularly looking for like her, you know, her um, one and only forever person, um, but then finds out that uh, through some research, through an article she reads or her parents read or some research that um, the optimum age for uh, finding the right person for your life um, is the age that she is now. And in fact, she might be slightly old for that, which sounds crazy when you're saying 24, but yeah. it's, it's, it, there was some, it was some scientific way of deducing, you know, how old you had to be depending on what you wanted out of your life. Um, and so she decides to go on a search for um, the, the one, the one that she can be happy with. But she does it um, because she's a very scientific-minded person, so she does it using science. However, as I think we can <laughs> imagine... <laughs> Uh, using just science to try and predict love, um, you know, or predict uh, compatibility or six or long-term relationship success um, is not really going to cut it and doesn't really cut it in this book. <laughs> but the journey of her discovery to find out, you know, what is actually really important um, is just really charming. And it's also um, a great book on like, uh, it also kind of follows her through her career and her sort of certainty at the beginning of the book that you feel like, yep, 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 this is exactly where she wants to be and where she should be, to then sort of discovering as she also learns about love and what is love, about like herself and what she actually wants to do with her life and whether just because she can be a great um, uh, lawyer, contract lawyer or, you know, that kind of thing, is that what she actually wants to do? So I thought it was really, I was really, really pleasantly surprised. I did not think I was going to enjoy it as much as I did. And um, I'm really looking forward to her writing some more books in the future. Can, can Nick read it on warm summer nights or does it have to be read in cold winter nights? Well, I mean, he can read it whenever he likes. But um, you, know, <laughs> you said it's perfect for cold winter nights, but I thought that doesn't help Nick. British summer doesn't really compare with the summer. I was going to say, yeah, your summer's <laughs> like our winter anyway, so you should yeah, be fine. Sorry, first I thought you were talking about our Nick because of his love of Bridgerton. No, 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 no. And I was like confused because I'm like he's sitting right next to me. It's he's also in the same Sydney. Cold <laughs> no, no, I meant Nick in London. And then when you meant London, Nick, I was like, well, he's in London anyway, so even their warm summer nights are still probably what we would call a cold That's winter true. night. So you, it's probably the same. You can read it now, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't you don't have to wait. Um, it's an Australian book as well. I should mention, sorry, that it's set in it. So it's set in um, in Sydney, which is great. I love a, I love a. Um, it's really unusual to find a book that's written like this, this kind of style of book um, that's just contemporary and set in Sydney. And um, I loved it. It's great. Um, there should be more like that, like it. Um, so then my second book that I'm going to quickly talk about is a book um, called Terminal Boredom. Um, it's short stories from the late um, Izumi Suzuki, who was a um, – she seems – she talk about people, that women that had interesting lives. Um, she was apparently a countercultural icon, pioneer of Japanese science fiction. She worked in a factory as a bar hostess. Apparently then she became famous as a model um, and an actress before she started writing basically sci-fi, sci-fi novels about – the sort of the human condition and sort of, um, you know, what it was like being in Japan in the kind of the 80s, this kind of tension between um, society, which is very, you know, you do what you're supposed to do, and then, um, you know, individuals that didn't fit into that into that society. Um, I found this quite a challenging read, even though it's super short. Um, it is translated fiction, um, so it's finally been translated. Um, it's translated by one, two, three, four, five, six different people wow. um, translated this, um, I think. I'm not sure if it's one. I feel like it's probably one per story. Um, it doesn't actually specify in the copy that I have. But it's super, super interesting. Each 
Each story is very different. They all have kind of similar, similar themes um, of, um, you know, sort of alienation. In one book, they're actual aliens. <laughs> and, um, and, um, and sort of the, the, um, the feelings of, you know, of, of youth feeling that they have no purpose in life and nowhere to go. Um, and, you know, this one, uh, one society where uh, it's actually there are no men anymore. There's just it's basically women and the men are kept on like basically the version of a zoo and they're just there for procreation. <laughs> um, and there's it's so it's it's it really it's really really super interesting and it's um uh, really more interesting when I just presumed it was contemporary fiction as in written now and then to find out like right at the end of the book uh, of once I'd finished reading it that it was actually um, written in 1980 and. Um, and that uh, or or some of the stories came out sort of around like in the 80s and that unfortunately that she actually um, uh, took her own life after she sort mm. of soon after she'd finished writing the, the final book in this um, in this series or oh, in the short stories collection sorry um, it, it actually kind of like made me go back and kind of read the last story again um, in that light and it was really really sad to sort of see that you know that this person who had done all these amazing things and who um, and lived such an interesting life, um, you know, also succumbed to to that sort of um, to you know, depression. So, um, you know, we'll have a little warning at the, yes. the end if you also that brings up anything with you that um, mm. you, people that you can contact. But um, I think it's really worth reading. I've been really enjoying reading um, Japanese fiction this year, particularly. Um, and um, yeah, it's really great to be able to that this has been translated into English, so that more people. What is the name of the collection again? It's called Terminal Boredom. Terminal which is, Boredom, which is great the name title. of the one last of the stories of the last story. Yeah, yeah. Um, by yeah, Azumi uh, Suzuki. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing collection yeah. of stories. It's very challenging because of the way that she writes. It's there's a lot of jumps between um, characters, between narrations. Sometimes people change like within the story, and you you don't really understand what's going on, but once you've sort of read them all and kind of think about it a bit more, then you can really see the themes that she's writing about yeah. coming through. And just as a small note for uh, for any listeners who might be upset uh, might be upset by uh, the the content there, um, there are services out there to help, and we recommend reaching out to Lifeline on thirteen eleven fourteen. That number again, thirteen eleven fourteen. Thank you so much for those recommendations. You know, it sounds really interesting. All right, so we'll now move on to the final part of the show. Uh, the show. <laughs> Can you hear my sigh? That was, if that wasn't loud enough, I'll just. <sighs> we, we always feel we're clever until we come onto this quiz, and then, then, we, then we don't feel clever anymore. I never felt clever. Just I'll have that out there. I know I am not clever when it comes to quizzes. Although I will say that there is a 7 p.m. quiz on Radio National, um, and last night's quiz. Oh, not last night, the night before. I was in the car, and when I'm not under pressure, I managed to get quite a lot of questions correct. Well, we'll find out today. This we believe happen. you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out today how you will go because it is time for book fight. <laughs> um, so, just in the interest of what happened last time we had Nick on, we, we had a bit of a time delay for the listeners who. Uh, I'm sorry, you had a lot. You had a lot of chances to answer questions, and it's unfortunate that we had a bit of a time delay. Um, so, what we're going to do is, after the, we have the questions, we'll ask the people who are live here with me for about a two-second delay before you can put your buzzer in. Um, just to give Nick the chance to actually hear the full question before he, uh, so he can, so he can respond. Very happy to do that. <laughs> but I'll grab a buzzer. Thank you, guys. It's very gracious of you. You're very lucky that there's some other people that are on this podcast are not on the one, this one with you because they would not be so gracious. <laughs> yeah. 
And, yeah, like Mark or Olivia. <laughs> I wasn't going to name any names. <laughs> um, but I'll grab a buzzer for you all now and I'll, Scott, what shall your buzzer be? Oh, well, given what I just discussed, I guess I'll, I'll remember Mary. Mary, great one. <laughs> um, Kobo, Nick, what shall yours be? Uh, given that it's uh, the start of LGBTQ plus uh, Pride Month, I will go for Pride, please. Yes, please. Excellent buzzer. Um, and Chanu? Um, well, I was, I kind of, I've now, I've now that uh, Scott's been talking about that book, um, I have the Lord song Royals in my head, so <laughs> I'm going to go with Royals. <laughs> Royals. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Royals, Pride, and Mary shall be our buzzers. Let's play Book Fight. Question one. In the anonymous poem Beowulf, the hero faces a monster. What is the name of that monster? Yeah, it turns out none of us need the second. (laughs) Mary. Yes. (laughs) Boris Johnson. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Grendel? Yes, correct. It is Grendel. I did not study. I, I studied Beowulf at yeah. university. Yeah. There you so, go. Yeah. Yeah. I went to uni by correspondence. <laughs> I think I should get half a point for originality. Yeah, no, I, I, was, I was tempted to give you half a point for Boris Johnson. That's I, I, I would be fine if you did. That would be funny. Um. <laughs> Great. Uh, one yeah. point to Nick there. Yeah. yeah. Don't get uh, right, actually, actually Nick, as soon as you said that, I thought, yes, Grendel, but I think I studied it a bit earlier than university, which is too many years ago for me to remember. <laughs> I, I watched, uh, I was just saying the other day, I watched Terminator 2 as one of the um, things I had to do for uni. So you can see that we're not at the same, <laughs> at the same level. Or you, or you study different courses. <laughs> yeah, I film studies, but you know. <laughs> question two. Now, this is probably going to be the toughest question here. If <laughs> I, I put a warning in. Truman Capote's In Cold Blood takes its name from a Shakespeare play. Can anyone name what the Shakespeare play is? Right. Yep. Merchant of Venice? No, it's not Merchant of Venice. Um, it's in the same, like in terms of the title, kind of similar, but no, it's not Merchant of Venice. Throwing it out to anyone? I don't know that that made it any No, it, it didn't. It's, it's, <laughs> um. it's, it's one of the lesser known plays, which I feel is a bit, is a bit evil of me, but... It is book fight and it, it needs to maintain its infamous reputation. I literally have can think of zero other <laughs> Shakespeare plays besides the ones that I know it is not because you've yeah. just said that. So all I can think of is Romeo and Juliet, Julius Caesar, <laughs> Richard, the many Richards, whatever they were, third, fourth, fifth, I don't know, third, um, <laughs> The Tempest. Uh, Unfortunately, it's none uh, of them. No, I'm, I'm a blank. No, I'm I thought like, of Macbeth, but then that Hamlet? doesn't fit with Nick's clue. No. Any... Uh, uh, okay, come on, come on. What else? Come on, Nick. Uh, do you have Nick? Uh, Nick across the airwaves. Do you come have on, you it? Must, you can have another go. We don't mind. Do you have any ideas? Uh, uh, what other Shakespeare I that I did not just that. mention? <laughs> the death of I mean, Coriolanus. There are more than more than you think. Um, it's not. Uh, can't be. You're not using your phone, Scott. No, it's not Titus Andronicus. Um, it was around the time near the end of his career, Coriolanus. The actual name of the of the 
play is Timon of Athens, which is one of the only oh, plays that's <laughs> never produced. Yeah, it's yeah never produced. It's one of the only one of the few plays that he actually co-wrote, which is was right at the end of his career. Well, that's just a stupid. Question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I feel like it was a trick question, guys. We were all wrong. Yeah. Well, I think if any of our listeners are sitting there saying, I knew that, I don't believe you. Yeah. <laughs> more well, power to you if you yeah. did actually know. Well, that. More power yeah. to you if you really did, yes. <laughs> well, don't yeah. worry. Question three will be a lot easier. What is the name of Jamie Oliver's upcoming cookbook scheduled for release in September this year? Ugh, oh, Royals. I actually know this one, but I could also be wrong because I. I know I can tell you the cover. Oh, actually, better question would it be how many cho- how many of his children are featured on the cover? <laughs> it's not all of them. Um, I think it's called Together. It is. You are absolutely correct, Shanu. It is called Together. You have just justified being the lifestyle category manager, Shanu, <laughs> that you knew one of your books. Yeah. Well, I, look, I know the title. I told Nick already. Just because I, you know, it's cookbooks. I don't often know what's inside them, but I do know what the title is and what the cover looks like. Yeah. <laughs> and let me guess, it's got a. I'm just slightly amazed that Jamie Oliver is also, uh, you know, recognised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's you know. Yeah. This uh, this this might be the one that everyone comes back to after Five Ingredients, his last big hit. Yeah. And it's got a smiling face of Jamie on the cover, no doubt. So this is an interesting one, right? Because it's called together. So it'd be a bit weird if it was just Jamie. Yes. So it's Jamie and his uh, lovely wife, Jules. And what I presumed was all of their children, Mm. but apparently only four either fit on the cover or were willing to be photographed on the cover. So, yeah, it's the family in front of a brick wall. Interesting. Yeah. It is. It is. One to look forward to. The recipes do look pretty good, though. (laughs) I am quite hungry. You can pre-order at (laughs) booktopia.com.au. Oh, God. You absolutely can. Um, question four. So for two points, name the author and the book that contains this opening line. In the light of the moon, a little egg lay on a leaf. Um, yes. It's not the very hungry. <laughs> it by, is um, the, the very hungry. Departed Eric Hull. Yes, it is. You are absolutely yep. correct. That yep. is two points. I did actually know that. A one. good memorial <laughs> question. Yes. Val, Val Eric Carl, yeah. who passed away last week at the age of ninety-two, I think. Yes, and what a, and what a life he lived, and all the books that he had done. It, yeah, so. And all all that merchandising um, opportunity that so now, many people... Did you and do the listeners out. know that the original title of The Very Hungry Caterpillar was The Very Hungry Bookworm? No. And his publisher rejected it and suggested he call it Caterpillar instead of Bookworm. No, I didn't so know So there that. you go. There's wow. a bit of literary trivia for you. Another bit of trivia that people might not know about The Very Hungry Caterpillar is um, Eric Cole was unhappy with the scene uh, where the caterpillar yep. is uh, nauseous after yep. overeating, yep. Um, there was a, a very interesting, illuminating interview where he, he basically said that, you know, we're, we're all very hungry and um, the caterpillar eats a lot because he's very hungry and then grows from his experience. So he really resented the publishers trying to push a negative um, experience onto that because he wanted it to be a, a completely wholesome and sort of happy growth journey. I did read that in one of the articles after he passed away, that, that, that bit of trivia. And lucky for him, what they insisted upon did not detrimentally affect sales in the least. <laughs> Although who knows what might have happened. <laughs> yeah, who knows? It still did pretty well. <laughs> oh, 
Indeed. That's true. I just think it's interesting because of the philosophy of the Caterpillar. You know, it changes the whole ethos. Yes, absolutely. If he doesn't actually, yeah, if he doesn't have any suffer any consequences. Although it isn't very realistic, is it? Because we have all suffered consequences, <laughs> from, I'm sure, from overeating. Um. Indeed. And Vale, Eric Carl, will miss him very much. Um, question five. How many districts are there in the Hunger Games? Oh, I'm not waiting. Royals. (laughs) (laughs) Shanu broke the rules by not waiting. And I was waiting. I actually knew that too. So there you go. No, no, no. I'm kidding. You go. You you can – either one of you can go. It's fine. It's just that I I waited too long for the last one. Which it, it's it's well, true. I'll give it, I'll, I'll give I'll give this one to you in this instance. No, 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 no. It's fine. It's I fine. Think I think you should have Shanu because because you've been waiting for Nick for every question, so he doesn't get another one. It was I you think first. Scott, Scott, you go. If you know it, I'm so impressed. Five. Five. Oh no, no, it's, it's not, not seven. Five. It's not five. No, it's not. It's not five. <laughs> oh no, it's more than that. No, it's sorry. Okay, go Nick. Go Kobo Nick. I would say thirteen. You would be correct. Yes. It is 13. I don't know why I said five. <laughs> I don't know what I'm know thinking it. of. Yeah. Um, so the famous we ap- five. <laughs> no, I was just thinking this District 12. Is it uh, one more than that? Yes. Yeah. yes. So, um, so we are now past the halfway point. Currently, Nick is on four points. Chanu is on one. Scott is yet to score. But oh, don't dear. worry, we have a chance. I'm contributing, you, you, though. You are contributing. I'm chatting. Yes. And you, have, <laughs> and you now have the chance. Don't worry, there's plenty of time to come back. Question six. For three points, tell me this. What do Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot and George Remy's famous cartoon character Tintin have in common? Royal. <laughs> oh, no, it's your word. <laughs> Mary. <laughs> I can answer that question, but also you didn't get did – Nick didn't I get I didn't wait for seconds. Nick. Sorry, Nick. Yeah. Nick. Do you know Nick? Do you know Nick? Or? I'm sure you do. It's a pretty um, – I think I do, but uh, you can have it because I feel like, um, although I really appreciate the head start, I feel like it's um, perhaps too generous. I'll I'll make it it a one-second advantage. I I could say they're both bestsellers, but the answer is they're both from Belgium. You would be absolutely correct. They are both from Belgium. He's not French. (laughs) He does not like to be confused for a Frenchman. Yes. And, of course, if you read the original, it's Tintin, not Tintin. Yes. Oh, yes, you're yes. correct. Yes. Apologies. But, you know, yes. who is reading the original? <laughs> Dubois and Dubois instead of um, yeah, Thompson is, and Thompson. We're Australian. Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what can I say? I read both versions. <laughs> oh, brilliant. I love that. I'm so glad that you were able to get that straight away. <laughs> I was thinking I was being Slightly vindicated. Niche. I've got I a knew, point. I knew that one as well. There you just go. FYI. Yes, Please. apologies. Just, Sorry. I told you, I'm just not very good at, like, time-sensitive <laughs> Okay, question seven, and the, the advantage is now for one point, um, just to, so, so uh, you guys can also jump in. For two points, name the latest book from famous YA novelist Emily Rodder and the magical skill the main character possesses. Well, that's not very fair to Nick, because how would he know that? Emily Rodder's pretty famous. Not, pretty she's famous. A, in Australia, not in the UK. Nick, you know who Emily Rodder is. Do <laughs> I have to confess, I have never heard of you them don't, before. You don't, I'm sure they're you best, don't best, have to confess. Brilliant, but I've, I've She's not famous there. Yeah. That's fine. What about Del Toro Quest? No. Doesn't, didn't do big in the UK. Um, anyway, so Sorry. I will answer that question because I, if I'm, as I'm sure you do, Nick, listen to every single one of the book, Weekend Booktopians, that, including the ones you, you're not on, is that I... Um, I uh, waxed lyrical for a very long time about this book um, last month and I got to uh, meet Emily Rodder, which was very exciting for me 
because she is a big deal in Australia. Um, anyway, uh, the book is called um, Eliza Vander's Button Box, yep. and she is a magical. Well, I mean, she's not. She's a magical person who can. Um, is a, she's a dressmaker. That's her profession. She's a mm-hmm. magical dressmaker. Not that the dresses are magic, but she's magical and she is a dressmaker. Yes, and that is absolutely correct for both of those po- for yep. those points. Con- thank you very much. So that brings us to the final question, and we find ourselves very, very close indeed. Scott is currently on three points. Nick is currently on four. Shanu is currently on three. For this last question, we are going to suspend the buzzer oh. entirely. I'll, I'll still Uh-oh. allow the one second advantage for I have a bad feeling about this question. Yep. So for one point each... <sighs> <laughs> Name the seven major houses of Westeros that exist at the beginning of George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire series. I have never read Game of Thrones. I have Bye-bye. never watched Game of Thrones, so Stark. off you go. Greyjoy. <laughs> Greyjoy is one, yes. Stark. Greyjoy. Stark, yes. Targaryen. T- no, Targaryen no, is not, not one, one of the, of the major houses because it doesn't. it's been completely wiped out. So we have two. We have Greyjoy and it was Stark, I think you said as well. Lannister. Lannister. Lannister, yes. Lannister? Yes. Scott, have you got any? Slytherin. No. <laughs> no, I know that was a joke. I know that's yeah. one. Um, you know, I watched it all years ago on TV and I can't, except for the ones that have been named, I can't remember any others now. So, so yes, um, we have, yeah, Greyjoy, Stark and Lannister are the first are the first three mentioned that are correct. Of... You got any, any more? I think I'm all out. I can't, I can't remember the others. I, I do know them, so I'll be kicking myself, but um, I've forgotten. Scott, you want no, to have a go? No, I'm a blank. You're a blank. Shanu, you want to have a, have a stab? Oh, absolutely not. How in the world <laughs> would I have any idea, um, having not at all been... I thought you would have watched, you might have had a no. crack at the show. Never no, at all. Not, not at all. Not for me. <laughs> Fair point. I don't like watching TV shows where I can't see what's happening. Fair. Too, when I say dark, I mean literally dark, like there is too much, like darkness on the screen I cannot see what's going on (laughs) well the answers I would have also accepted in addition to House Lannister House Stark and House Greyjoy would have been House Baratheon oh Baratheon yes of course House Arryn House Tyrell House Tully and House Martell oh some of those lesser ones at the end I never would have got but Baratheon House Tyrell, I mean... Well, we all have to go back and read the books again, obviously. <laughs> yes, we're, uh, we've been just in time for for George R.R. Martin to release A Winds of Winter. Still waiting. We don't know where it, when it's coming. Yes, I hope he lives long enough to release it. <laughs> he finished it 10 years ago. He's just waiting because he doesn't want the feedback till he's passed on before he puts it out there, I reckon. You reckon? Oh, Rumours going around. We won't know till we know. Um, that brings us to the end of Book Fight and we'll have a look at the scores and oh my goodness gracious me, both Scott and Chanu finish up with three points but congratulations to Nick from Kobo for winning with seven points. Oh well yay, if you can't win the cricket you might as well win this. (laughs) (laughs) Shots fired. Really? <laughs> I just it just proves what I say every week. The biggest nerd, the biggest nerd wins. <laughs> yeah, I, I am quite a big man, so I was really gutted that last time I, I had to, you know, take up defeat. So I'm really chuffed that exactly. the victory. Yeah. See, you're going to ask to be on with us every time now. <laughs> But (laughs) whatever our joint humiliation, the important thing is hoping our our listeners got some interesting 
trivia about books and some ideas of what more to read and <laughs> perhaps order from Booktopia. So at the end of the day, books were the winner. Books are always the winner. <laughs> Thanks for letting us chat about them. <laughs> um, and that will bring us to the end of the Weekend Booktopian for another week. Thanks to my guests for joining us and thank you especially to Nick for joining us from the UK. Um, we hope to have you on again soon and have a, have a lovely morning. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks very much for having me, guys, and I'll definitely hope to be back on too. You certainly shall be. You're welcome back anytime. So be sure to check out all of our books that we've mentioned today down in the description box. And if you are a lover of all things ebooks, download the Booktopia by Rackerton Kobo app and get access to over 5 million ebooks and audiobooks to choose from. The Weekend Booktopian was produced by myself, Nick Wasiliev, and you can check out hundreds of episodes on our Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud channels, including our recent interview with Sarah Winman, author of Still Life. Also be sure to check out Booktopia TV on YouTube, or if you cannot get enough of chatting to authors, head to the Booktopian blog, curated by Olivia Frico, where you can read the articles, articles that are pushed every single day, including a brand new recipe for hummingbird loaf cake from Sophie Hansen's cookbook In Good Company, which is now part of our new comfort cooking series, or the list of books that we enjoyed in May this year. Thank you for listening, and never stop reading. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.